Dear Father, as we come before you, we pray that your word will speak powerfully to us today because it speaks of your Son, Jesus. And we pray that we may understand it to the core of our being so that it will change the way we see everything, including ourselves and you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, uh, a few weeks ago, just actually about two weeks plus, my grandfather, who was 92, fell down and hit his head off the table. Uh, he cut himself and uh, it wouldn't stop bleeding, so he was admitted to hospital. And then uh, during that time, uh, his uh, bleeding got better, but then he got a lung infection. And then after he got lung infection, because he was having trouble breathing, it affected his heart. So he's basically been in the hospital now for about two weeks, and uh, I've spent many uh, uh, days just sitting there with my grandfather and my uncles. So we're always sitting around uh, the hospital a bit, and we talk about all sorts of things, but there's one thing we never talk about, and that is the... The word, the death word, right? And why don't we talk about the, 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 the D word? Why don't we talk about death? Because I think my uncles are not ready for my grandfather to die, and I guess my grandfather is not ready to die as, as well, you know, even though he's 92. And as I was preparing the sermon, I was sort of thinking to myself, when will we be ready to die? Right? When will I be ready to die? When will you be ready to die? When is a good time to go? Right. Is it when you've achieved all your dreams? Is it when you've uh, said all your stories? When you've reached all the things uh, things that you want to do in life? Is that when you're ready to go? Is that when you're ready to die? Now, I know that that's a very morbid and dark question on Sunday morning or Sunday lunchtime. But I want you to keep that idea in your mind as we go through today's passage. Now, today we're looking at Luke chapter 2. And uh, as we begin Luke chapter 2... We want to remind ourselves that what we're reading here, even though it's full of angels and everything else, is not myth, it's not legend, it's not make-believe or fantasy world, but it's based in reality and in history. Because in chapter 1, if you remember, up here on the slide, um, the key words which Luke used to describe his account were eyewitness accounts. He basically said that he drew up an account based on all those things which from the first were handed down by eyewitnesses. And because of that, he wrote an orderly account. So those are the two things which characterize Luke's account to us of Jesus. Orderliness and eyewitness account. So actually, if you keep that in mind, you'll see that's how he's written out his uh, account. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, you can see that orderliness and the eyewitness uh, theme coming through. He says that in verse 1, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. Now, if you... Notice here, Luke sets Jesus' birth in real history, in a real historical situation, in the time and world of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the ruler of the Roman Empire. He was, a, uh, uh, he was the emperor from 27 BC to 14 AD. Okay, so Jesus' birth is as real as Caesar Augustus was real. And also, he says it in the time of Quirinius. And Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, we don't know as much about Quirinius as we do about Caesar Augustus, but Quirinius, we knew, 
began his uh, role in the Senate of uh, the Roman Empire in around 12 BC. And then he went on to be governor in various places, including uh, uh, Syria in 9 AD, or up to 9 AD. And because of their rule, there is this thing called a census. Uh, now, a census is where people come and knock on your door. Says, you know, uh, I've never been part of a census. Anybody here been part of a census? They come and knock on your door and they say, you know, what religion are you? How much do you earn? Are you male or female? Okay, this should be obvious, right? Okay, and all that sort of stuff, right? But in those days, they didn't really bother uh, with asking all those questions. Basically, the whole point of the Roman census was for taxation. They wanted to know how many people live there, so how much money should we be getting in tax? So, basically... Luke here is doing what um, uh, one pastor said. He's like doing Google Earth. Because you know Google Earth, right? You see the whole world, and then you put down the address, and it zooms down to the country, then it zooms down to your little house, right? Okay, so that's what he's doing. He's setting it in the world history. So the empire of the Roman world, down to the area of Syria, which is controlled by the Romans, and then all the way down to Bethlehem. Now, why is this important? Why does Luke record this for us? Because really... We don't really need to know uh, this sort of stuff when you think about it. But I think he's telling us this because he wants to record it in world history. But more than that, he wants us to draw attention to where they are going, which is Bethlehem. Now in verse 4, which is very important, two times we are told about Bethlehem, that is the town of David, because Joseph belonged to the house and line of David. Now why is it so important that we need to know that they are going to Bethlehem, the town of David, and Joseph was on the line of David. Who is this David character? Is it David Beckham? No, it is not David Beckham, right? It was King David. King David came from Bethlehem. That was his hometown. And again, as we look at context, right, and context is very important, in chapter 1, it was already clear, right, that God had said that Jesus would be like the one of David, he would rule forever and ever. So here in Luke chapter 1, up on the slide, uh, the angel had said to Mary, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be called great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And in verse 9, Zechariah says, He has raised up the horn of salvation. The horn is power. Remember why I said last week, the power of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. And what was actually being referred to here is that if you look back beyond Luke chapter 1, if you look back beyond in time, before Luke, God had already promised King David, that his great, 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 great grandson, one of them would rule into eternity. He would be an eternal king. So we, uh, we did it in the responsive reading, but in 2 Samuel chapter 17, this is what God says, right? God has said to King David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. And in Psalm chapter 89, it says, You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. So the whole point of uh, this first section is to show that Jesus, through his father Joseph, was from the line of David. 
And that gives us a very strong clue, right? You can see where Luke is pushing us through, that Jesus is this everlasting king that God promised hundreds of years ago who has come now in his person. Now this is very important because when we come to Luke chapter 2, we have this great temptation to think of it as a Christmas story. Or we think of nativity scene, we think of Joseph and Mary walking around with the baby Jesus, and then you know, they're knocking on doors, and then going to the manger, and all those nice animals, and the baby Jesus being there. But if you actually look at chapter 2, there are only really two verses which tell us about the birth of Jesus. No animals, right, are written there. Uh, Mary wasn't walking around with the baby Jesus. She, she probably gave birth in the manger. right? So, But that's all speculation because it doesn't tell us all these things because Luke is more interested in telling us who Jesus is. The identity of Jesus. That's the more important thing than how he was born. right? So Luke is not interested in having a video of the birth of Jesus. right? He's trying to tell us who Jesus is. That, that is the important thing. And who is Jesus? He is the horn of salvation in the line of David. He is the everlasting king and ruler of the world. So, in verse 8 onwards, Luke now turns from the historical setting of, his, of the birth of Jesus to the eyewitness account. Okay, remember he said in the beginning, my, my, my book is all about eyewitness testimony. So, who is the first eyewitness? The shepherds. Right? The shepherds living out in the fields are the first eyewitnesses. And in verse 8 it says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Christ. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now these shepherds are not the shepherds that we always see in um, in uh, the Christmas plays, right? Because you know the Christmas plays they always dress really you know, all white, nice and everything. The reality is actually in the ancient world shepherds were more like the way we look at the construction workers working on the roads. They were dirty, they were filthy, they were like lower, the low class of society. And these shepherds, uh, basically, they're very ordinary people. At night, they would bring all the sheep together. It's not their sheep. They are, they, they, they are like the, the factory, not factory, the, the, the working men of the, the rich people who looked after the flocks. And they would bring all their flocks together so that, uh, you know, they could keep each other company and look after the flocks. I don't know, maybe, they're not like the Marlboro men having a smoke or whatever. Okay? But they're all there together looking after their sheep. And then the angel comes and tells them, I have got good news of great joy for all the people. Now what is this great news or this good news that the angel brings? Well, actually he just tells them the good news of Jesus. But the good news is three things about Jesus. Three things about the identity of Jesus. Now if you want to organize it or write it down in your outline, the three things which uh, the angels say about Jesus are one, what is the role of Jesus? What is this baby Jesus come to do? The second thing is, what is his office? What is the position of Jesus? What is his title, right? And the third thing is, what is his identity? What is the identity of Jesus? What is his being? What is his essence? Uh, if you want a technical word, what is his ontological? What, what is he like? What is he really like? Okay, what is his identity? What is he made up of? Okay, 
So the first thing is, why did Jesus come to do? What is his mission statement? Well, he is the Savior. He comes to save. Now for the Jews, uh, they would have thought, okay, you know, Savior, what do we need? The most urgent need for Savior is someone to throw out these Romans. Okay, they, they, they were looking for a political or military Savior. But again, uh, Luke chapter 2, the context tells us from Luke 1 that this Savior that God is sending is not a military or political Savior. This Jesus is a Savior which saves people from their sins. So Luke chapter 1, which is up here, okay, Zechariah had said of this baby Jesus that he would give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. He's not a military or political savior, but someone who saves people from their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So he will save people from their sins he will save people from the shadow of death. That is the sort of salvation that Jesus brings. That's why it's good news. That's why it's good news not for the Jews, but for all the people. Because Jesus is the start of the great rescue operation of God to save people from sin, judgment and death. Now the second thing is, what, what was the second title? It was, he was the Christ. He is Christ. The office of Jesus. He is the Christ. Now, the Christ literally means anointed one. It's like, okay, if I've got this cup of water, throw it over my head, I'll be anointed water, right? But in the past, they would anoint people with oil. Not palm oil, olive oil, okay? And as they were anointed, they were, they were supposed to be uh, chosen by God to be like priests or prophets or kings. But the Bible says that there will be a special anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And uh, Psalm chapter 2, we, we will, uh, up here on the slide, this psalm is very important, okay? You, we will keep coming back to over and over again the whole of Luke, so you may as well just memorize it. Alright. But Psalm chapter 2 says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and His anointed one. The anointed one here means Christ or, or Messiah. And let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them and he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king. Okay, the Christ is the king. On Zion, my holy hill, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So this this Christ is an everlasting king like David, but he will rule everything for eternity. A, a king without any measure, any opposition, he will be a complete and comprehensive king. Now in the Old Testament, uh, the themes of Savior and the themes of Christ always appear over and over again as you look at the Old Testament. But for the first time, the Bible actually brings these two great theological themes together, Savior and Christ. And it's all found in this little baby, Jesus. Right? So at this point, baby hasn't, well, it's only like, I don't know how old, day old or whatever, hasn't spoken, hasn't you know, done any miracles, hasn't died on the cross, but the angels already declare to the shepherds, 
that this Jesus is the Savior and this Jesus is the Christ. Now, as impressive as that is, as great and awesome as that is, the next title shows that Jesus is even greater. Because it says that this Jesus is Christ the Lord. The third thing, what is the essence of being of Jesus? He is the Lord. The Lord means Master. But more than that, right, because again, context is very important. If you look at the whole of chapter 1, so turn back to chapter 1 in your Bibles. That's why you need the Bibles. I, I didn't print it up there. In verse 16, this is what Mary uses uh, when she describes God. So in verse 16, it says, Many of the people will he bring back to the Lord their God. Okay, Lord their God. So Lord refers to God. Verse 46. Verse 46. Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then in verse 48, 68, Zechariah says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. So what is Lord? The word Lord is always associated in Luke chapter 1 and 2 with God, divinity. So the essence of Jesus is that He is divine, He is God. You see, what is your essence? What is your being? What is your, what is your true uh, essence? You are man or woman. You are human. You are mortal. Jesus is not like us in that sense. He is Lord. He is God. He is divinity. And that's why the angels say that this is good news. It is good news. It is great news. In fact, it's the best news ever. Now, I want to ask you a question. What is good news to you? What would be good news to you? Uh, doing well in your exams, is that good news? Uh, getting a promotion? Getting the person of your dreams, is that good news? Having your housing prices go up so you earn lots of money, is that good news? Or if you don't own a house, hope, hoping the housing prices will come down, maybe that's good news for you. right? What is good news to you? Well, the Bible says that Jesus, the birth of Jesus, is the good news. The good news of great joy for all the people. Now, is that good news to you? When you read Luke chapter 2, is that good news? Did you say great news when you read that? If not, why not? Well, this pastor Rico Tai says that the problem for us is we are very obsessed in the world with trivia. Trivia, right? Okay, so like, who won 100 meters at the Olympics? Now, does it really matter to us? What impact? impact does it have on us? Who won the EPL last year? Championship. Uh, you know, like all the news that we get, okay, who won the Academy Awards, Oscar, does it really make a difference in our life? No, it's just trivia. And this pastor is saying, no, what are the big questions of life? Who am I? Who is God? What is my relationship with God? What happens to me after I die? These are the big questions, right? Now, if you really think about these questions, then the birth of Jesus as our Savior, as the Christ, as Lord, that is really great news. Because when Jesus comes, we are made right with God. We know God as He is. We know that we are right with God. And we know that we have eternal life. And that's why in verse 13, in case uh, we don't uh, respond correctly, uh, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. 
Now, the, this uh, first half of the verse, Glory to God in the Highest, is actually a very famous Christian hymn. You know that uh, song, Gloria in Excelsius Deo? You know, Gloria, you know the one that goes on and on and on, right? In Excelsius Deo? Okay? It, it means, literally it's Latin, which means, Glory to God in, in the Highest. But why, why glory to God in the highest? Just because Jesus is born. Because it says there, on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Now many times when you read this, you sort of just read, ah, okay, like, peace to men, you know, goodwill to all men, right? But that's not what it means. God is not talking about uh, world peace. He's not talking about the absence of war. You know, because in the last 2,000 years, God hasn't been doing a very good job because people are fighting all the time, right? World War One, World War Two, right? Vietnam War, you know, all about war in Afghanistan. But that's not the peace that God has in mind in verse fourteen. The peace that God has in mind is the peace between God and men. And that's why when you really pay attention to verse fourteen, it says, "Peace to men on whom His favor rests." That means only some people will experience the peace of God through Jesus. And only those people who are chosen by God to believe in what Jesus is doing for them. That Jesus has come to rescue them, who've, who've allowed Jesus to rescue them, who've allowed Jesus to save them, who recognize Jesus as Christ and worship Him as God. See, that's why, again, if you come back to chapter 1, right, the next slide, he says in chapter 1 about peace. Right? It's exactly the same. Is it through the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of God, we will be in the path of peace. Not world peace, but peace between ourselves and God. Because our sins have been taken away. You see, our natural default state of relationship with God is not one of peace, but one of war. God and We are at war with God. Or God is actually angry at us. He's at war of us because we are sinners. We sin before Him, so He's angry at us. We're not at peace with Him. But Jesus gives us peace when there was once anger. Now, uh, this pastor, John Chapman, I remember once uh, he gave this illustration. He said, you know, when you die and you meet God, we often think that God will ask us some questions, right? So, you know, some people make the joke, you know, when you go to the gates of Heaven, St. Peter will be there. They ask you some questions. Right? So, whether St. Peter or God, who knows, right? But the question people often think that will be asked on the last day is, have you been a good person? We often think, oh, you know, God is going to ask me on the last day, have I been a good person? But actually, that's the wrong question. See, God is not going to ask you that question, have you been a good person? Because He knows that you haven't been a good person. He knows that not a single living person has ever been a good person because we have all sinned at some point in time. The question that God is going to ask you on the last day is, how have you treated my son, Jesus? That's the question that God is going to ask you. How have you related to Jesus? So there's no point when God asks you the question, how have you related to Jesus, to say, well, you know, I went to church every week, I gave money to the poor, I was nice to my relatives, you know, I uh, helped the old lady across the road. Because that's not the question that God is going to ask you. You get zero marks when you answer the wrong question, right? The question is, how 
have you related to Jesus? How have you related to your Savior, to the Christ, the King of the world? How have you related to God who has come into the world? And that is the most important question because that will determine whether you have peace with God or whether God is going to pour out His anger on you. Now, the story then moves on to the second set of witnesses. So we had one witness, uh, set of witnesses, which were the shepherds. And then we are told of the second set, which comes uh, in verse 21. Now, in verse 21, uh, uh, we have seen, we've seen Jesus on the eighth day when he circumcised. And then, fast forwards uh, another 32 days, where there's a time of purification for Mary uh, in the law of the Old Testament. Because when women give birth, there is lots of blood. Trust me, there is lots of blood when women give birth. So women are ceremonially unclean and they come, come into the temple. So after 40 days, after giving birth, they are ceremonially cleansed so that they come, can come back into the temple. So Mary brings, uh, together Joseph, uh, the baby Jesus, into the temple. And there we are met with the next two set of eyewitnesses, Simeon and Anna. So Simeon is introduced in verse 25, where it says, There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Okay, then we're introduced to Anna, verse 36. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband eight, seven, seven years after marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, how would we describe these two eyewitnesses? Well, one is that they were both old. Okay, we presume they were both old because Simeon was waiting to die, but he couldn't die yet because he had to see the Christ. Uh, Anna was old because she was 84. Okay, the husband only lived seven years, but after that she lived to 84. They were both serious about God, serious about things of God. Simeon was described as righteous and devout. Uh, Anna, she never left the temple and worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Okay? So they were both serious about things of God. The third thing was that they were both, sorry, they were both waiters. Okay, they were not waiters in the restaurant, but they were both waiting for something. Right? They were both waiting for something. In fact, in Anna's case, there were other people who were waiting as well, and they were both waiting for the same thing, even though it was described differently. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna was waiting for the redemption of Israel. Now, what does this mean? Again, we need to go into the world of Jewish expectation. Right Now, 600 years earlier, Israel as an independent nation had been virtually destroyed. Uh, the superpower at the time, the Babylonians, had come under King Nebuchadnezzar. They had taken the land, they had taken their king, they had taken the independence and taken them away as refugees to Babylon. And from that time on, uh, Israel had become like the soccer ball of uh, that, around that place. Everybody's kicking them around. Then the Persians came, the Greeks came, and the Romans came. 
Now, from God's perspective, this was not, uh, you know, just a fickle fate of history, but rather it was God's judgment on Israel. So if you look up here in Jeremiah 32, right, look at how God describes the destruction of Israel by the Babylonians. In verse 26 it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, and this is what God said, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I am about to hand this city over to the Babylonians and to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who, who will capture it. The Babylonians who are, attacking, who are attacking the city will come in and set it on fire and they will burn it down along with the houses where the people provoked me to anger by burning incense on the roofs to Baal and by pouring out drink offerings to other gods. The people of Israel and Judah have done nothing but evil in my sight from their youth. Indeed, the people of Israel have done nothing but to provoke me with what their hands have made, declares the Lord. So you look up here on this slide. The key thing is, oh, this slide, right? The key thing is, God's anger uh, has been aroused against his people because they have worshipped other cause, they've been evil. And that's why all these bad things have happened to Israel. And devout people like Simeon and Anna were praying that God would comfort Israel and redeem Israel and no longer be angry at Israel. And that's why in Isaiah chapter 52, if you see up here, the phrases comfort and redemption mean the same thing. They mean salvation from God's anger. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all the nations. and All the ends of the earth will see the salvation. Our God. See, that's what uh, Simeon and Anna and many people were looking forward to. But what is so shocking is they find it in this little baby. I I want you to imagine, just think of a baby who is 40 days old. I I, I don't know, I can't think of, my kids are all grown up now, right? But imagine, right, a 40 day old picture, a 40 day old baby, and, and, and Simeon and Anna can see this baby and says, This baby is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of God that He will come to comfort Israel, to save the whole world. And the amazing thing is, Simeon is able to see more about Jesus through the Holy Spirit when Jesus is 40 days old and He carries it in His arms than the disciples and many people can see in many, you know, on half the book of Luke through talking and seeing Jesus' miracles. But, but what Simeon actually sees come true, it comes true. That after the 40 days, he never, uh, we never see Simeon anymore, he probably goes off and dies, right? goes to the old folks' home or something. And, uh, but then Jesus, 30 years' time, goes to the cross, uh, is resurrected from the dead, and the news of Jesus spreads over the world. Isn't that amazing that this Man, Simeon, can see Jesus just by picking him up and see that he is the Savior, the Christ, and the Lord. Now, I wonder uh, whether we can understand, maybe we need to read look more and more, but we can see Jesus the way that Simeon saw Jesus. 
Because if we could see Jesus the way Simeon saw Jesus, then we can say like Simeon did in verse 29, you can dismiss your servant in peace. You can be ready to die. Because God has come into the world to save us, to live for eternity in peace with Him. Do you believe that? If you really believe that, then you can die today, isn't it? You, you have no fear of death because you know that beyond death is eternity at peace with God. Uh, a true story is told of this Roman Catholic priest. Apparently his name is Cardinal Hume. And uh, he was apparently a principal of a very prestigious school in England where the rich people used to send their children. Uh, I don't know. This is a true story apparently from this pastor. And anyway, so uh, one day, this very rich and distinguished man came to visit Cardinal Hume, and his two children were in the school. And, uh, you know, they pay a lot of money to go to the school. So, uh, the parents of these children asked Cardinal Hume, the principal, and said, How are you preparing my children? And uh, what are you preparing them for? And I guess the parents expected Cardinal Hume, the principal, to say, Oh, you know, I'm preparing them to have a long and successful career. I'm preparing them to serve society. I'm preparing them to do all these things, right? But Cardinal Hume, the principal, said, I'm preparing them to die, right? Now, we don't know if uh, the, the parents took the children uh, out of the school after that. But in a way, if you believe in the Bible, if you believe in Jesus, then that's what the, good, that's what the news of Jesus is doing, is it's preparing you for death. That's why Simeon could be dismissed in peace. That's why Jesus came to save people in the shadow of death and bring forgiveness of sins. See, the, the story of Jesus is not a children's play. Right? It's not entertainment and laughter. But rather, it is very serious words about our destiny, who we are, and where we are going. It is very serious words about God's anger, about peace with God. Now, once you hear about Jesus, uh, it's like a life-changing experience. You either choose to follow Jesus or you choose to reject Jesus. And in many ways, it's, uh, it's quite an offensive message, isn't it? Because Jesus is basically saying, I am the, the only way. It's a very narrow way. You, know, you either come to me on my terms and then you will be saved and have peace or you do not come this way, then you will be still in God's anger. See, look at what it says there in verse 34. Because these words, uh, again, uh, they're good news, but also bad news, isn't it? Because in verse 34 it says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So, the news of Jesus will cause people to either rise or they will fall. Now, Mary had said the same thing when she sang her song uh, in chapter 1, where it says that those who are humble, those who fear God, those who are mindful of God, they will, they will be risen up. But those who are proud, those who are rich, those who are rulers, they will be thrown down. Now, notice there is no in-between. There is no person hovering in... Uh, you know, the in-between rising and falling, right? You either rise or you fall with the coming of Jesus. Now the question for us is, where 
What, what is your direction? Are you going to rise up together with Jesus because you are humble and you are mindful of God and fear God? Or will you fall down? Or will you be one of those who fall because you reject Jesus and you do not treat Him rightly? You are proud in your heart. So William Taylor, a pastor, talked of how he met a partner. I thought he was a pastor, but he met a partner okay, in, a, in a law firm, a very rich man uh, in England. And uh, this partner and, uh, was very surprised to hear that he was a pastor, that William Taylor was a pastor. And he's even more surprised when he heard that he had 300 people go to his church. And he said, you mean there's still so many people who go to church on a Sunday? Right? He said, uh, do they have psychological problems or something? Right? So this pastor, William Taylor, thought about it for a while. And uh, he said, well, why do, why do all these people come to church? It's not because they have a psychological problem. I mean, I don't think you all have psychological problems, right? But he said they all come to church because they are humble enough to admit that they need a Savior in Jesus Christ. That's why we come to church, isn't it? Because we are humble enough to admit that we need a Savior in Jesus Christ. We are not proud to, and say we can handle uh, God's anger on our own. We are, we are so big that we can take on God's judgment on our own. That we are so good that we can go to heaven on our own. No. We can only rise if we accept the peace that comes because Jesus is our Savior and He is the Christ. So I began uh, today by talking about my grandfather and saying whether uh, there is ever a time when we are ready to die. We're ready to die in peace. And today, we saw one person who was, Simeon. He was ready to die in peace. He could be dismissed in peace. And he was able to be dismissed in peace because he knew the identity of Jesus. He was not just another normal baby, but he was the Savior of the world. He was the everlasting King, the Christ, the Anointed One who would rule forever. And he was God. Now, if you know Jesus the way Simeon knew Jesus, then we should be at peace too. We should be at complete peace. Because we know that our sins are all paid for. We know that even as we live in the shadow of the valley of death, there is a 100% sure promise that the everlasting life will be even better than the one that we have. So why should we fear the death? So will you be humble or will you be proud? Will you have the peace of God or will you have the wrath of God? Will you be rescued or will you perish because you try to rescue yourself? All of it depends on how you see Jesus and whether you trust on Him. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you, we really want to pray that today, as we read Luke chapter 2, we know Jesus as He really is. That He is a totally incomparable figure in history. That He is God, He is Lord, He is Christ, everlasting King. He is also the Savior who will rescue all those whom your favor turns to. We pray for each and every one of us that we will have peace with you because Jesus has forgiven our sins. 
We pray that each and every one of us will have eternal life because Jesus has saved us from the shadow of death. We pray for each and every one of us that we will truly have a relationship of peace, of everlasting peace with you and not anger. Dear Father, may we always see that the greatest good news in this world is Jesus. Because through Jesus, we can be like Simeon. We can be ready for death. We can be confident of eternal life. We can be sure that there is a great and uh, over, um, passing over of judgment for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.